Numbers 14, 11. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I've performed in their midst? I'll smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I'll make you, Moses, into a greater nation and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your strength you brought up this people from their midst, and they'll tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They've heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now, I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have also forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys, turn tomorrow, and set out to the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they're making against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all of your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephthunah, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I'll bring them in. And they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness. And they'll suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days. For every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years. And you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to this all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. 
In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. As for the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land and who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing out a bad report concerning the land, even those men who brought out the very bad report on the land died by a plague before the Lord. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephthunah, remained alive out of those men who went to spy out the land. When Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and they went up to the ridge of the hill country saying, Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we'll go up to the place which the Lord has promised. But Moses said, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Don't go up or you'll be struck down before your enemies for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you and you'll fall by the sword inasmuch as you've turned back from following the Lord and the Lord will not be with you. But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. Blaise Pascal said, One half of all the ills of life come because men are unwilling to sit down quietly for 30 minutes to think through all the possible consequences of their acts. To quote the Apostle Paul in Scripture in Galatians 6, he said, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he also will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so we're free to sow... But once you sow the seed, you're not free to change what crop comes up. uh, Unless the amazing grace of God floods into your life through the gospel and changes everything. But I must say, even then, sometimes God allows the consequences of our sin to persist to teach us to hate our sin. Now, our text shows that if through unbelief you reject God's gracious promise of salvation, you will reap tragic consequences, but if you respond in faith, you'll reap eternal life. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that's kind of a gloomy first half of that uh, statement. You know, couldn't we just kind of focus on the positive? But... You know, Numbers 14 is kind of a gloomy chapter. Uh, Except for the examples of Moses and Joshua and Caleb, Numbers 14 just reports this story about these ten spies. You'll remember that in chapter 13, 12 spies went into the land and they spied it out. They came back. Ten of them had a gloom and doom report. They said, 
Oh, there's giants in the land. You know, we're grasshoppers in their sight. There's no way we can go up and take the land. Two of the spies, however, Caleb and Joshua, tried to counter the negative report and said, in effect, listen, if God is with us, we'll eat those guys for lunch. You know, literally, they will be our food. We're going to take the land. The people, however, sided with the ten faithless spies. They proposed appointing a new leader, returning to Egypt. They were just on the verge of stoning Joshua and Caleb, maybe Moses and Aaron too. Text doesn't specify, but they were pretty hostile. And then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent. And that's always a dramatic event when that Shekinah glory of God descends and appears. And the verses that we're considering now uh, report God's pronouncement of judgment on that evil, unbelieving congregation. But the good news is that even in judgment, God's mercy shines through to give hope to all who will respond in faith. So I want to point out five lessons this morning. And they're kind of in a bad news, good news format. Uh, first, bad news. And that is, if you repeatedly reject God's grace, you may come to the point where you have crossed the line of no return. In verse 11 of our chapter, the Lord asks Moses, How long... Will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I've performed in their midst? And of course, God never asks questions because he's lacking the answer. Uh, he asks that question to get the people to think about their hardness of heart, their rebellion. And then in verse 22, the Lord says that these people who had seen his glory and the signs he performed in the wilderness, had put him to the test these ten times. Now, the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, and some commentators actually go through and they tally up ten times that Israel, coming out of Egypt, had rejected the Lord. Um, but often in the Bible, ten is simply the number of completion. You have ten commandments, you have ten plagues on Egypt. It represents completion, and so... This may well be a figure of speech where God is saying they have filled up the measure of guilt now to the point where judgment is inevitable. Again, in verse 27, uh, the Lord asks Moses the same question. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. And so the people have crossed the line, and now the Lord pronounces judgment on that evil, unbelieving generation. First of all, he presents Moses with the same test he gave Moses after the golden calf, and that is, I'm going to wipe out this people, and I'll make a new people with you. And Moses responds here in the same way he had after the golden calf, um, arguing for God's glory. So the Lord, in response to Moses' prayer, relents from uh, destroying the people on the spot. 
But he does sentence all of that generation, 20 years old and upward, who had rejected him to die in the wilderness. Only Joshua and Caleb, the two who had believed his um, word, would enter into the land. And so the chapter shows us that people who repeatedly reject God's clear witness to them may cross a line where that's it. They are beyond God's patience and grace. He is patient. He is gracious. But the Bible is clear. There's a line. Now that raises the question, ooh, Where's the line? (laughs) When do you cross over the line? I should have years ago prepared a statement that I could just copy and paste to reply to all the emails I get from people who fear that they have committed the unpardonable sin. I I get them all the time. Uh, And... They wonder, could I have committed it? And my basic answer is, if you are still concerned that you've committed it, you probably haven't. Because people who have committed the unpardonable sin are impervious. They couldn't care less about God, about His Word, about His message. If they're concerned, there's still hope that perhaps they are not beyond the reach of God's grace. Strictly speaking, the unpardonable sin had to do with when Jesus was on the earth attributing his works, his miracles to Satan. And the Pharisees did that. So strictly speaking, that sin cannot be committed after the time of Jesus being on earth. But I believe that even though you cannot exactly duplicate the sense of it, the warning still holds true. And that is, if you turn away from the grace of God again and again and again and again, at some point your heart is so hardened that it's just going to bounce off you. You're you're beyond the point of His grace. Now you ask again, well, when does a person cross that line? And my answer is, only God knows. But clearly, we should not mess around with the grace of God when He shines it into our lives. When the Gospel comes to you, it's serious. And you better be on your face saying, Oh God, I I need to reply, I need to respond favorably to Your Word. Proverbs 29.1 warns this, A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. Now, at this point, some think, well, what about the thief on the cross? You know, here's a guy hanging there just moments from when he's going to die and he comes to faith. And as for me, I'm going to sow some wild oats and right before I die, I'll repent and come to Christ and everything will be well. Well, that's a really stupid decision. Let me put it bluntly. Because, number one, we don't know if the thief on the cross had ever rejected or even ever heard of the Lord Jesus. That may have been his first and only opportunity. And he responded. Um, And a wise Puritan wrote it this way. He said, We have one account of a deathbed repentance 
in order that no man need despair. We have only one in order that no man may presume. So you don't want to presume on the grace of God. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.2 said, Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is uh, behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. So the point again is, don't push your limits. If God is speaking to you right now through his word, don't say, well, I'll I'll think about that, but I'm enjoying the, the life I have. No, no, no. Come to Christ now. The second point is that God's promise of salvation is laid hold of by faith so that he will be glorified among the nations. The problem with the crowd in Israel that wanted to return to Egypt is they did not believe in the Lord and his promise. Uh, In verse 11 that we read, the Lord asked, how long will they not believe in me? In spite of everything that he had done for them, he had promised to give them the land of Canaan. um, And it's a picture of our salvation as we've seen. The Exodus is the Old Testament main display of God's redemption in Christ with the Passover lamb and all of the events that took place there. And the Bible is clear. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ and not of works lest any boast. And in fact, saving faith is a gift of God because if it came from us, you know what we'd do? We'd boast in our faith. I've got more faith than that guy, haha. No, even saving faith comes from God as a gift. So, salvation is by God's mercy. Now, it's really important that you understand that the main reason God saves anyone is to the praise of the glory of His grace. That phrase is repeated three times in Ephesians 1. Verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. And he tells Moses here in verse 21, But indeed... As I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And God's glory is displayed in the grace that he pours out on those he saves, but it also will be displayed in the judgment that he righteously brings on those who have sinned and not repented. So what I'm saying is this. I think we err when we think salvation is mainly about us. Yes, praise God, he saves us from judgment, and it is wonderful. But salvation is mainly about God and his glory filling the whole earth. And Moses got that. And so when God proposes wiping out this disobedient, unbelieving people and starting over with Moses, what he does is he goes before God and he pleads God's glory. Notice verse 15 again in verse 16. Moses says, Now, Lord, if you slay this people as one man, the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath. Therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness 
And so <clears throat> I love the way Moses here, he's arguing his case like an attorney in court would do. You know, he presents his evidence and he comes and, and he lays it before the Lord. And he goes on in verse 17, but now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great. Just as you have declared, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have also have forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. Did you catch what he's doing? If you've been with this series for a while, you realize that he's praying back to the Lord the words from uh, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, when he said, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, you know, how he is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and so on. And in the same way, when we pray, especially when we pray for lost people, and we all have loved ones who are lost that we pray for, you should lay hold of God's word and just pray it back to him. Lord, you know, you've said you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that uh, the wicked would turn from his way and live. That's Ezekiel 33:11. And Lord, you've said that the whole earth will be filled with your glory. That's here in our text in verse 21 and many other places. And so, Lord, would you please be glorified now in saving so-and-so, our loved one, our neighbor, whoever it may be, by granting him the repentance that leads to life. And that's Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. One other point to note here. Moses knew that the pagan nations were paying attention to God's salvation of his people. And so he's concerned that if God slaughters Israel in the wilderness, all the pagan nations are wrongly going to assume that God lacks the power to bring them into the land. And the interesting thing is, when you jump ahead in the story to the book of Joshua, Israel, Moses is dead, Joshua is now leading Israel, and they're ready to cross the Jordan and go into the land. And he sends two spies in, and they lodge at the home of a, a woman whose epithet is Rahab the harlot. And Rahab tells them about the fame of God delivering Israel. Forty years before. She probably wasn't even 40 years old. But she, she tells these two spies, we've heard how your God brought Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, destroyed Pharaoh and his army, and has sustained them in the wilderness all these years. So the nations were listening. They were paying attention and the word was spreading. Uh, and Rahab, as you may know, is one of the great stories in the Bible. Because she believed in the God of Israel and his salvation. And she hung that scarlet cord in her window. And when Israel invaded Jericho, she and her family were spared. And here's the neat thing. She pops up in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? A prostitute. 
in the genealogy of Christ. And then you get to that great faith chapter, Hebrews 11, and there she is, right there, a woman of faith who believed the word of God, and that is an example to us. And so the issue is, do you think the world is watching us? The answer is yeah, they are. They're watching how you respond to trials. They're watching how you live your life. Everything. And so, will we uphold God's fame before the watching world by trusting in the living God, or will we defame Him because of our unbelief? A third point. Although the Lord may delay judgment, He does not necessarily remove the consequences of sin on us or on our children. The people hear about the giants in the land, and in verse 2 of chapter 14, they wail, Oh, would that we had died in the wilderness. And they go on to actually accuse God of deceiving them, of deliberately bringing them into the land as a setup, so they'll all die in the wilderness, and their kids and their wives are going to be prey for the enemy. And so the Lord, in response, solemnly declares, and he says it four times, verse 29, 32, 33, and 35, he says, all right, you wanted to die in the wilderness, you will die in the wilderness. You accuse me of bringing your children out here so they'd become prey, it's your children who are going in and they're going to possess the land that you despised. And so God passes that judgment on them and then during the next 38 years if the numbers are correct and I know there's debate about the the high numbers but if there were say a couple of million uh, adults just take a million and you divide up 38 years into a million that tallies up to 26,000 deaths every year 72 Every day, assuming they were spread out over 38 years. Moses saw a lot of funerals, a lot of deaths, all because of their sin. Two lessons. First of all, there are temporal and eternal consequences on those who reject God's salvation. And as I've pointed out, Israel's main problem, the Lord says, is they do not believe in me. It was unbelief. And then the Lord twice, verse 11 and down down again in verse 23 says, they've spurned me. The ESV translates it, despised me. Or the NIV has, they have contempt for me. And both of those capture the meaning of that word. Um, Twice in verse 27 and again in verse 35, God calls them an evil congregation. They were grumbling against him. And then you jump ahead to Psalm 95, and in verses 10 and 11, the Lord says, For 40 years I loathed that generation. That's bad to have God loathe you. And and I said, They are a people who err in their heart, and they don't know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, they truly, they shall not enter my rest. Now that raises a, a question, though. In our text, God says he's pardoned them, and yet he passes judgment on them. So you're going, how how does that work? Well, I think that when God says he's pardoned them, um, he 
doesn't mean forgiveness unto eternal life. He means, I'm not going to kill them all on the spot. Now, the ten spies, they all died immediately for their sin. They're the ones that instigated the unbelief to spread. But God is just saying, I'm delaying my judgment on these people. But he's promising Moses that his covenant with Abraham would not be abrogated and their children would be uh, spared. And yet, all these grumbling unbelievers are going to suffer the results of their rebellion. They would miss out on the joy of living in the land of milk and honey, the promised land. And I believe they would go to eternal judgment because of their stubborn heart of unbelief in God. You get to the book of Hebrews And the author relies heavily on this story of Israel in the wilderness because his readers were a second-generation Jewish Christian church, mostly. Hebrew people who had come to faith, but now they were under persecution. They were in the wilderness, so to speak, and they were grumbling and saying, let's just go back. You know, go back to the world. We, We had it better when we were just... Jews, and we didn't have all this Christian persecution. And throughout the book of Hebrews, the author is warning them, and he uses this illustration of Israel in the wilderness in Hebrews 3. And then in verse 12, he gives this admonition to all of us. He says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, that falls away from the living God. And so he's saying, yeah, you may be going through persecution, you may be going through difficult trials, but God's promise hasn't failed. And to say, well, I'm going back to the world, I had it better as an unbeliever than I have it now, would indicate that your heart was never converted in the first place. You've got an evil, unbelieving heart. And you don't want to go there. Uh... You will not enjoy the many blessings of walking with Christ now, seeing his promises and his provision, and you'll face eternal judgment when you die. The second thing to note here is that there are temporal and sometimes eternal consequences on the children of those who reject God's salvation. Now, God promises to bring the children of the rebels into the land, but he says in verse 31, they're going to have to be shepherds out in this wilderness for 40 years because of their sin, their parents' sin. And they're going to have to suffer for their parents' unfaithfulness. And they're all going to live out there and see their parents die premature deaths out in that barren wilderness. Now, the Bible is clear. God does not condemn any person because of their parents' sin. Every person is responsible for their own sin and judgment. But at the same time, since the fall, as we saw back in Exodus 34, and it's repeated here, the sins of parents do affect children. Boy, we see that all the time, don't we, with abused children cases. There was one on the front page of the paper today of a little six-year-old boy that died because of abusive treatment from his family. And what that means for all of us is this. If you love your kids, kill your sin. You know, if you love your kids, deal with your hypocrisy. That turns kids off. 
Deal with your anger. That doesn't show Christ to your kids. Deal with your lust. That doesn't show Christ. Deal with your selfishness. And, and emphasize the loving kindness of the Lord by every day trying to show your kids love and mercy and patience and kindness, the fruit of the Spirit, so that your kids say, man, I want what mom and dad have. And I want that for my kids. So, again, this chapter is kind of bad news, good news. The first point was bad news. If you repeatedly reject God's grace, you may go across the line of no return. Don't do that. Then the good news. God's promise of salvation is not by works. It's by faith alone so that God gets the glory in everything. Uh, the bad news on the third point, although the Lord may delay judgment, he doesn't necessarily remove the consequences of sin on us or on our children. And then, I'm sorry, but there's more bad news, but then we'll end on good news. The, the next, the fourth point is to attempt to bypass God's way of salvation and use your own means of salvation will be ultimately tragic down in verse 39, when Moses tells the Israelites God's word of judgment, it says they mourned greatly, but it was superficial repentance. And the way we know that is immediately they disobey the Lord. The Lord, in verse 25, gave a command, turn and go out into the wilderness. You're going to be out there for 38 years. They're saying, oh no, we can take the land. And so they go against the commandment of the Lord and determine they're going to go up and go into the land. And so the irony is when they had the promise of God's presence, you can go into the land with the Lord, Joshua and Caleb assured them, and we can win. They said, no, let's go back to Egypt. Now when the Lord says, no, you're going to spend 38 years in the wilderness, they say, no, we're going to go into the land. And twice Moses warns them, and he says, the Lord isn't with you guys. And I'm not going with you guys because you're going to get creamed. And they just say, nope, we're going. And they go up and they get creamed. Um, so outwardly, they profess to be obeying God. Well, God promised the land. Let's go take the land. But it's, again, disobeying God because they just, God had just pronounced in judgment against them. And so they go up without the ark, which represented God's presence, and they go up without God's mediator, who is Moses, and they get struck down as far as Hormah. Now, as such, these disobedient, self-willed Israelites are a picture of people who reject God's means of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ, and instead say, nope, we're going to do it our way. You know, I know God said I can get saved by grace through faith in Christ, but no, I'm going into the land my way. Um, Alfred Edersheim made this observation. He said, the obedience which is not of simple faith is of self-confidence and only another kind of unbelief and self-righteousness. And I think it's safe to say that the main reason people reject the gospel is they say, I can do it myself. You know, my good works, I'm a good person. you got to understand, I, I got my faults, but I'm basically good. And I don't need a Savior 
because I'm not a bad sinner. I'm a pretty good sinner. And so I can get into the land all by myself, thank you. And they can't. Because God's standard is not being a pretty good person. God's standard is being a perfect person. Absolutely righteous in thought, word, and deed from day one till the day you die. And I won't ask for a show of hands of how many think you've done that. But I predict if you really know your heart, you know I have failed God over and over and over and over. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3 said this, There is none righteous. He's quoting the Old Testament here totally. There is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. That's from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, which repeats Psalm 14. He goes on, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. And then he goes back, there is none who does good. There is not even one. And so you ask, well then, how can anyone be saved? And so I end on some good news. And that is, if you receive God's salvation in the way that he's ordained, you will inherit eternal blessings, and I might add, as an absolutely free gift. The two believing spies, as I said, they're the bright light in the dark chapter of Numbers 14. Uh, They believed God's promise to give them the land, and they pleaded back in verses 8 and 9 of this chapter with the unbelieving majority and said this, If the Lord is pleased with us, then He'll bring us into this land to give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And don't fear the people of the land. They'll be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Now, Caleb's probably the main speaker there. And you jump down to verse 24, and the Lord says, My servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. And the neat thing again, when you read ahead to the book of Joshua, 45 years later, now by now Caleb is 85 years old, And he approaches Joshua, and uh, he says to Joshua in Joshua 14.12, Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day the Anakim were there. Remember last time? They're the giants. Ooh, these big guys. With great fortified cities. And here's what this 85-year-old man of faith says. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I'll drive them out as the Lord has spoken. So he doesn't back down one bit, even though he's an old guy. And then the next verse is confirmed. This is verses 13 and 14. So Joshua blessed him, notice, and gave Hebron. Remember, that was the city that they had visited and said, oh, the giants are there. So Joshua gives Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephthunah, for an inheritance Of course, he had to drive out the giants, but it says, Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephthunah, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. And the Bible from cover to cover is full of the truth 
that God will abundantly bless those who trust His promise of salvation in Christ and those who follow Him fully. And as I said, giving the promised land to Caleb and Joshua and others who believed His promise is a picture of the fact that if we believe in the good news that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scripture, that we, by God's mercy, will have eternal life. Because at the cross, God's mercy and His justice met. Jesus bore the sins of all who will trust Him. And so, God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus as our sin bearer. The penalty has been paid, and now God is free to pour out His love and mercy on us. And I know you know this verse, but it speaks well here, and that is John 3.16, promises for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the promise of God, if you will believe. Now, to do that, as I said a moment ago, you have to abandon your prideful trust in yourself. Throw away all your good works. They're the main impediment to your coming to faith. Trust in Christ, who himself fulfilled all of God's holy, righteous ways and believe in Christ alone and that way he gets all the glory. The Apostle Paul in Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 7 sums it up this way. He says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. We didn't save ourselves. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so I can declare to you this morning, if you will abandon your own works that you've done in righteousness, and trust in Jesus Christ and His work for you on the cross, God will give you eternal life as a free gift. And there's no better news in the whole world than that. The author Robert Louis Stevenson observed, Everybody, soon or late, sits down to a banquet of consequences. Make sure that your consequences will not be God's judgment because you've gone your own stubborn way and rejected His offer of salvation. Make sure your banquet will be eternal joy in heaven forever with Christ and all the saints because by God's mercy, you said, yes, Lord, I trust in Jesus alone. Let's pray. If you're here right now, you can in your own heart just go before the Lord and say, Oh God, my sins, they are many, but your mercy is more as we sang. 
God, I pray that you would give me faith to believe in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And I trust in Him alone. And Father, we're burdened by many in our family. Many we know in this community who are heading toward judgment because they've rejected Jesus. And I pray in your mercy you would intervene and save them for your fame, your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.